Uh, while we're talking, I want y'all to glance at, at John's uh, bell bottoms up here. I think it'll help make the point. Uh, it's May 16th, 2010. Uh, our message this morning is going to come from Isaiah 20. and uh, So go ahead and turn there. And I think we're going to call it Laid Bare. Laid Bare. I think this is about the third time we've seen Dustin. That makes him family now. I want to tell you, uh, I love this young man already. If you don't know him, get to know him. Get his phone number. Uh, help him get plugged into this fellowship. Amen? Amen. All right. Y'all in Isaiah 20? Um, get us a little water here. Uh, last week was a principled stand. Sometimes in your life, you simply have to take a stand against all the cultural trends, against all the pressure trying to conform you to the world. The week before that was, I will not yield. An Assyrian king named Sennacherib had marched against Jerusalem, and Hezekiah spread out his problems before the Lord, but refused to yield to this satanic power. I want to start with another Assyrian king. And I've been talking so much about Assyria, if you're the note-taking kind, I thought I would give you some Assyrian kings in order. Uh, the first guy that you might want to write down is Tiglath, T-I-G-L-A-T-H, Pelizer. This guy ranked from 745 to 727. And in places like uh, 2 Kings 15, you find out that he did some pretty ugly things. Like he began to deport Israelis from the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, he deported them from their homeland. So when he went and conquered a city, he didn't just conquer it, he took everybody there and made them slaves and brought them back to Assyria. That's not so cool, is it? Then his son, or rather his successor, was a guy named Shalmaneser, S-H-A-L-M-A-N-E-S-E-R. He reigned from 727 to 722. He actually was not a son, just a successor. You can read about him in 2 Kings 17. He did something even more strange. Not only did he go into Samaria and all of the northern ten tribes and deport Israelites, but he brought with him Assyrians and put them in the place of Israelites. This is really interesting because there's always been a satanic desire to replace the Jews with another people. Some of our theologians fell prey to it with something called replacement theology. They taught that the church had somehow replaced Israel rather than grafted into Israel and Israel being the recipients of God's promises and us along with them, they simply replaced all of Israel with the church. This has been going on for a very long time. Even Jacob and Esau had these issues. There was a jealousy involved and you might think of Jacob as the one that was jealous, but the descendants of Esau to this very day are trying to throw out the Israelites from their land and put a different people there. This is our modern uh, Palestinian authority movement. Now, none of that may move you, especially if you're not politically inclined or biblically inclined towards the politics of the day. But what would be important is if you were living in ancient Israel and Tiglath-Pileser and then Shalmaneser had gone before and begun taking people, if you can imagine all of New York is now brought into French Canada, and they're made to speak French, and they work as household servants in Canada. How strange would that be for you? Mm -hmm. And then not just uh, New York, but also Chicago. And uh, Rhode Island was a holdout for a while, but you just heard Rhode Island fell. 
and they're all speaking French and they're all Canadians. How would you feel about that? Now, the third guy that comes is a guy named Sargon. He's only mentioned once in all of the word, and he reigned from 721 to 705. Sargon wanted to improve upon what his two previous predecessors had done. Well, they already conquered northern Israel. They already went in and took slaves and replaced them with Assyrians. He wanted to do it to Judah as well. What we're going to read about here in a moment is a threat that was invading to go towards Judah. Now, he actually did not succeed. The guy who eventually marched on Judah was Sennacherib, who we read about two weeks ago. He came after it. But do you see there's four kings in a row. All four kings are bent on usurping Israel by replacing Israel, by conquering Israel, by putting people in the land that don't belong there. This has been Satan's desire for a long time. I like to teach about it among the nations, but what may be important today is to realize that the devil is threatened by who you are. He's threatened by who God's called you to be, what God's scripture already says about you. And so he has sent wave of attack after wave of attack to try to get you to think of yourself as something other than God's people, to think of yourself as something less than what God called you to be. He's at times in your life talked you into wearing garments that are not fitting for you. And it's ridiculous. If there are things in your closet that you would not want to wear today, I wonder what is in your spiritual closet that at times you wear that is not fitting to wear before the King of Kings. I tell you one very common one is shame. There is no place in God's kingdom for sons who believe they have received forgiveness from Jesus to walk around in shame. It's almost like we're saying the cross was not enough. Mm. That's tough, isn't it? One of the things that I hope you'll get as we read this is a little bit lighter attitude about this as you're informed. Okay? I neither want to teach uh, grace as a license for immorality, like greasy grace or sloppy agape, something cheap, nor do I want to teach works-based salvation. The truth is, somewhere in the middle of this, we work it out with fear and trembling. But God is not interested in you walking around with a frown on your face, feeling as if you don't measure up. He died so that you would measure up. He credited you with his right standing. So that if any man is in Christ, old things are gone. He is a new creation. Not you will be. You are right now. Mm. Thank you, Lord. When we begin to worship, are you like me, that things that you didn't get right this week begin to come to your mind? Do you feel a little bit like a hypocrite? Okay, maybe a whole lot like a hypocrite. When we enter through the bloody sacrifice of Jesus, hypocrisy slides away. If you think you can come in here and praise and worship without coming to terms with who you are and where you stand with God, you're wrong. But if you're willing to come to terms with it, to look into the face of our bloody Savior and give an accounting for where you're at, then he's willing to credit you with his right standing in God's presence. And it takes as much faith to believe that as anything else in the kingdom. Mm. How about that? In Isaiah 20, in the year that the supreme commander, I don't think I would want that title, in the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it. Before we move any further, Ashdod. 
Ascot appears on that map back there. If you look uh, north of the Dead Sea and to the west, you're going to find Jerusalem. And immediately to the west of Jerusalem on the coast is a city called Ashdod. It'd be right in the left center of the coastline on that picture. If you were going to attack Jerusalem, Ashdod would be the place to start. If you're a foreign king coming from Assyria and you're not going to go by land, you're going to go by naval attack, Ashdod would be the place to start because it is a straight eastward march from Ashdod straight to Jerusalem. This gives you the idea or the intent that Sargon has when he shows up. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. This is some 10, 15 years before Sennacherib shows up to attack Jerusalem. <coughs> Isn't it great that Isaiah was around in both cases? Yeah. Isaiah delivers the word of God that the king of Israel needs to hear in both cases. Isn't it good to have men of God in your life? Yeah. Who would say that you fit that bill in their life? They say, man, that brother brings me the right word when I need it. This needs to be our aspiration, saints. We need to be looking to be useful in God's presence. And if when we say the man of God, you think of a preacher, you are missing the boat. Isaiah held no office. There's no hint that he had a congregation. He's a prophet to a nation. He's just sometimes these prophets are not even named. One time in the book of Kings, it simply says, The man of God from Judah. <laughs> Never even gives you a name. It is important that you have people in your life that bring you words, but it is also important that you are willing to step out in faith and deliver words for other people. Yes, this is the body of Christ. This is what it means for iron to sharpen iron. You need Nathans in your life that will say, Thou art the man. But you also, <laughs> and not in a good way, Thou art the man. But you also need to be willing to do that for your friends. It is not love if you will not speak the truth to your friends. Right. Hmm? In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so going around stripped and barefoot. Abel, did you bring your uh, New American Standard today? Yeah. yeah, read that. Read that in your New American Standard. Read it loud where they can hear you. It's at the time the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips, and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. Naked and barefoot. NIV chose the word stripped. It feels better until you think about literally what it means. You know, I have an affinity for looking to see exactly how the Hebrews would say these things. By the way, this, uh, this word take off, it is pofak, and it means <laughs> open wide. Oh. Yeah, open wide. And then when you get down to the word stripped, there is only one way to say it. It's mothin, and it means nude. nude. So open wide your garments, you're going to be nude. How about that? I'm sorry. I said it was Mothin. It was uh, a room. Mothin is uh, the area of the body we're talking about. Here it says body. I think New American Standard says loins. Hips. 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 <laughs> Mothin means from the small of your back to your hips to your mid thighs. Yeah, this is precisely the area of your body you would like to cover, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you can have my shirt if you have to. Uh, and maybe my shoes, but please don't take these garments, right? Why do we wear those things? 
Well, one is because nakedness tends to have to do with demonic activity, the way things are today. But having said that, what is the other reason? Why, when a man and woman sinned, did they go and cover these places on their body? Shame. Shame. Listen to what he says. Now, I, I want you to understand, the commentaries, when they get into this, some they do anything they can to avoid what is so obviously being said here because they're uncomfortable with the idea that God would cause a man to walk around for three years naked. I mean, they don't like it. And I can understand, most of the commentaries are written during an age when you didn't show your wrist or your ankles. I want you to know God is not interested in how comfortable his people are or are not. He's interested in their obedience. How many of you thought you were called to the prophetic ministry before we read this? (laughs) (laughs) Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so uh, the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared. So even if you did believe the commentaries that said, oh, this was just an outer garment, uh, it was just symbolic, and he wasn't really naked, what is God trying to say here? Isaiah is a sign for God's people of what is going to happen to two kingdoms that they are relying on for help. See, what happened is after Samaria and the northern kingdoms of Israel fell to the Assyrians, can you imagine the intense pressure that was upon the kings of Judah to find somebody to ally with them so that it didn't happen to Judah? Right? This would be like, I know it's hard to imagine, that the Canadians have invaded, they've taken all everybody above the uh, Mason-Dixon line, everybody in the, uh, in the former Union states, they've hauled them off to Canada, they've replaced them with Canadians, and now we hear every year rumors of war, that they're coming and they're going to do it to the southern states. Could there be pressure on you to see if you could find some Mexican friends? Could there... <laughs> Could there be pressure upon you to find any nation that might stand with you? God didn't want this. God wanted them to depend upon him. God puts his people in increasingly vulnerable positions, positions that are not defensible, positions that you cannot protect yourself, so that it is clear only he can protect you. Now, are we only talking about nations here? Or isn't it true that at times in your life you feel... How many of you have those weird dreams where you sit up in the middle of the night sweating because you just dreamed you were naked in front of a bunch of people? Okay, if a few of you are giggling, I, I want to guess I'm, I'm not the only one that has ever had that. Okay? For me, it usually means that the bed spread has gotten pulled over and gins all wrapped up in it. There is an innate desire in us to protect ourselves. We want to control our image. We want to make sure that everybody views us a certain way. And the truth is there is a huge obstacle between you and Jesus most of the time. We know that if we dig down deep enough, there are things in our lives we would never want anybody, including God, to see. And we pretend they're not there. And we put on our nicest clothes, kind of like John's bell bottoms back here. And we're happy. We're confident for a time because it covers us. And don't we look good in it? I mean, and pretty soon everybody will be wearing this. But give it 20 years, and how ridiculous does that covering look? It no more has the power to change who you are than those belt bottoms do. 
Sometimes we do this with hairstyles, we do it with certain makeup, we do it with all kinds of things. The cars that we drive, and it is all trying to say one thing. I would like you very much to view me a certain way. Hmm. God is interested in stripping his people. And he stripped Isaiah down to nothing. Can you imagine how awkward this was? Mom, I see Isaiah coming. Oh, dear children, hide your eyes. I mean, this must have... Can you imagine how hard it must have been for Isaiah to literally walk this out? Mm. Listen well as we keep going. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent for three years as a sign and portent, sorry, against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on the coast will say, See what has happened to those who relied on those we fled to help. And deliverance from the king of Assyria. From deliverance from the king of Assyria. The point here being, God is saying the things that you're relying on to protect you besides me, I'm going to absolutely make a shame. He literally says, it'll be as if all their clothes were ripped off and you were staring at their naked hineys. And he wrote that in all of the word for us to see. Now you could just look and say, oh, this was about military conquest. It was about campaign." But honestly, what do we call it when somebody gets a little out of hand, maybe is a little full of themselves, and they say something that they shouldn't? Now, you guys have been raised in church all of your life, so you've never heard phrases like this. But my dad used to say, oh, he's showing his tail, right? What are we trying to say? They just slipped out from behind, from behind the facade, and we saw a little bit of what is really underneath. You put enough pressure on a man, and he will show himself to you. God was putting pressure upon Judah. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody is like your Mississippi? What I mean by that, having lived in Louisiana for a long time, is they're always there because they do so badly that it makes you look good. I mean, Louisiana would have been 50th in everything if it were not for Mississippi from 1970 to 1990, right? <laughs> We weren't last in education because there was Mississippi. We weren't last in revenues because there was Mississippi. They were kind of like our Mississippi. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah had a Mississippi. It was the northern kingdom. God referred to them as sisters. And when the northern sister was punished before all of the world, the southern sister looked pretty good. I mean, after all, she didn't get into idolatry like they did. She didn't have the problems like they did. Most of the book of Ezekiel is written to address this. You are no better than her. Her sins were obvious, and I corrected her. Yours were not so obvious, but you never would repent from them. God is putting pressure upon the southern kingdom. He's saying, I just carried off the northern kingdom because they were in sin. The people that you're relying on will not help you. Is he trying to punish them? He's trying to get them to a place where they are laid bare before God so that they could realize they needed to be clothed in something. But it didn't come from their closet. It wasn't quite as stylish as John's bell bottoms. Can you imagine at the time this was cool? There are some things in my closet and in my wife's closet that not only are they not cool anymore, they would barely cover a third of our bodies because we've grown in the Lord. 
<laughs> but at the time, you were sure it was appropriate. It was the right thing. Let a little time go by in the Lord, and you will see how unfitting it is to carry certain attitudes, like competition, to carry with you certain things like shame, how unfitting it is to carry with you self-reliance. In fact, isn't that kind of what being naked is all about? Being completely vulnerable, not having anything to hide behind just who you are. I'm not interested in anybody in this room being literally naked, but I am interested in everybody in this room not having anything left to hide behind before the eyes of the Lord so that you and him can come to terms with exactly who you are. You know, I don't want to leave this subject too quickly, and yet I also don't want to linger here too long. So let's look at one more in Micah, maybe two more. And uh, I want you to see this theme. You're going to be in Micah 1. That brother was fast. Man, man, you're going to be in Micah 1. By the way, the book of Micah is written just prior to the conquest of Sennacherib coming to the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom has been carried off. The southern kingdom is about to be carried off. And Micah is talking about that and he's lamenting about it. And look at the eighth verse. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. In the exact same context, he's saying that at least if he's not actually, it was as if he was stripped naked and he was barefoot. Nothing left to make him feel proud about himself. Nothing left to make him feel like he was secure. Have you ever watched little kids put on a pair of cowboy boots? My little girl, when she put on her very first pair, and she pulls and the foot locks in. And she pulls and the foot locks in. And what do they do? They stomp. Right? They feel taller. They feel stronger. They feel invincible. All of our lives, we're looking for things that make us feel exactly the same way. And nothing in your closet, spiritually speaking or naturally speaking, can fulfill that role. In fact, the things that are just very cool when you're in your 20s are not so cool in your 40s. And definitely not cool in your 80s. In fact, Fred gave me a quote from Confucius yesterday. I loved it. He said, when a man is 20, he thinks about his loins. When he's 40, he considers his navel. In other words, you start to think about where you've come from. Start to think about your lineage, your legacy, and what you'll leave behind. Have you ever looked at those Olden Mills pictures? <laughs> I mean, they're funny, aren't they? And in their day, they were amazing. But a few years later, they are laughable, aren't they? It's so very important that you are addressing yourself with the Lord in a mirror and not in a picture. If you failed Him horribly, miserably, and it was a defining moment in your life, and that's all you can think about, is I will never get to where I was because I... You're looking at your relationship with the Lord as a picture and not as a mirror. The Lord God says that you are whatever the Word says you are. Some people are looking at a picture that's perfect and is pristine and they're declaring that it's true when it's not. Other people are looking at a picture that is a failure in their life and it's not true either. 
We must look into the mirror of the word and decide what it says we are. Last one I'm going to read you. Let's go to Mark 14. You probably already know this one, but it's still worth reading. Dustin's there. The rest of you getting there? In Mark 14, check out this 51st verse. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him. He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. (laughs) Have you ever left a difficult situation feeling like you didn't have anything left? I know what it's like to have to testify in court and be asked questions you don't want to answer under oath. I also know what it is like to be in a meeting before the presence of the living God. And there is nothing left to hide behind. You either have to be honest or you realize God might strike you dead. You know the saying at funerals? He brought nothing in this world and he'll take nothing out of it. Naked I came into the world, naked I leave, those kind of things. They're all so easy to say. But the truth is, you're uncomfortable if your hair is not fixed before you leave the house, aren't you? Does it change the way God views you? I'm not suggesting that you don't fix your hair. (laughs) But what I'm trying to say is our lives are so full of this that we don't even realize it. We don't even realize that we're trying to change something inside of us with outward means. You know, I've been doing this long enough that I can tell you major hairstyle change for most women means something has changed in their life. There's a fight they're trying to get over with their husband or there's a baby on the way, something. Something new that is a new phase in their life. When a guy grows his hair down past his waist, he's trying to tell the world something. I mean, it, it says something. You can decide what he's trying to tell the world. The point is, our appearance, what we wear, what we're trying to project, says something about us. And I want you to honestly think about what that means today. Vulnerability is being stripped in the presence of a threat. This is to be prized in the kingdom. If it's safe... If it's, Lord, nobody's around, so here just in this one setting, I'm going to be honest with you. But as soon as they walk back in the room, I am the righteous one. I am the perfect one. I am the one who never makes a mistake. That is not good. That's not being vulnerable before the Lord. What it means to be stripped naked before the Lord means that what people think about you is only what He's caused them to think about you. If there's anything good in your life, it's only what's come from the Lord. It's the heart where Paul says... If I boast in anything, I will boast in my weakness so that no one would think of me more highly than he ought to based on what I do or say. How many of you would be comfortable with that, though? I know I'm not. I'm not. I would. This is why before somebody stands up to speak, they tell you all of their biographical information. They want to make sure before this man speaks, you understand what a great human being he is so that it will be well received. I was at a graduation the other day, and a politician stood up to speak. And he said that it was not going to be about politics. And although I agree with most of his politics, the truth is he lied. Because the next 15 minutes were nothing but his politics. <laughs> yeah, he promised to make it short as well. It was, it was not short. Not at all. And the people became uncomfortable. And before us was printed all of his biographical information. And while we're sitting there, I Googled him, and he has a website with all of his accomplishments in his life. And yet when he stood to speak, you know what he shared? All of his accomplishments in his life. 
He wants you to view him a certain way so that you will give him a thumbs up. Now, I wish it was just politicians that are this way, but how much of our life do we invest in how others view us? Are you even trying to trick God in some areas? Turn with me to Galatians 3.10. We're going to hover in the New Testament here for a little while. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because it is the righteous who will live by trusting. Of all of the things this has been said to me through the years, uh, of condemning Jewish legalism, of condemning Judaism, of throwing out the Old Testament, all of these ridiculous things, you know the heart of this issue goes right to what we're talking about? Everyone who is relying upon their deeds, how good they are, to be justified in God's sight is under a curse. If you truly think that God cares what you ate or didn't eat, if you you devalue yourself when you can't fit in a pair of jeans before God, if you will not come to a praise and worship service because yesterday you sinned, you are relying upon something that puts you under a curse before God. It is your trust in Him that puts you in right standing before Him. It is not your performance. But when we trust in Him, our performance begins to change as moved by Him. No one seems to understand this relationship and they end up either saying you don't do anything for Him or else that somehow sin by doing something for Him. Or you must hurt yourself in some way to please Him. Neither one are true. But if our reliance, if we think God views us differently... Based on today's performance, you are wrong. How do you know you're wrong? Let's be honest. You were pretty damaged when he purchased you, weren't you? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now all of these many years, months, weeks, or days later, you're still pretty broken. Mm -hmm. But what we like to tell people is, I had problems, and then I got saved. As if that's the end of the story. Friends, I want you to know, I had problems, I have problems, and some of them are big enough that I will still have them tomorrow, but I am working on them. Amen. Better than I'm working on them, he's working in spite of them. Look at this one. How about 2 Corinthians 1? We do not want you, 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Does that sound like he's vulnerable? So that we despaired even of life. What does it mean to despair of life? You can put this in your terms for me. It means to wish you were dead. To begin to be tempted to wish you were dead or thought you were. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Part of Christianity is simply acknowledging what you are without the window dressing. <laughs> i got to tell you a story uh, that is just cute. I didn't plan to tell it, but my wife back in the day had this little pink body glove uh, swimsuit. I mean, it was down to her ankles and covered her <laughs> wrist. I mean, she turned my head 
when she uh, walked out in this. But we were not dating yet. I was dating a different little girl. And I just happened to be bold enough to invite them both to a water park. <laughs> Three went into the water. But when the little girl that I was with came out with us, all of her beauty washed away in that pool. And I noticed it right away. <laughs> I imagine she had caked enough stuff upon her to hide those potholes in her head. <laughs> And her attitude didn't do anything to help cover it either. But I noticed immediately that Jennifer was pretty before she went in the water and after she came out of the water because it was who she was. And her attitude was beautiful. So I broke up with the one girl and began courting her. <laughs> I was 15. Our beauty needs to come from something more than just window dressing before the Lord. It needs to come from a heart that is completely broken in his presence and trust him in every situation. Man, women, if you're looking for an outward facade that is gorgeous and that's what you want, it will fade. It will fade. You know what will never fade? Is the heart that has learned to be completely dependent upon the Lord. Paul said that he was put in this position so that he might learn not to rely on himself, but on God. Now, if Paul, after having been called to the third heaven, if, if in fact that was Paul, after having been spoken to audibly and visually by Jesus, <coughs> after having suffered many, many things for the Lord and delivered by them, still had to be taught not to rely on himself. What do you think we have to be taught? See, sometimes it, it appears more like the law. All who rely on the law. These are our do's and don'ts in Christ. Christians do this. Christians don't do this. And see how good I am because I don't do this. That is one kind of self-reliance. Another one is simply every time I'm in trouble, buddy, I have the resources to get us out. The force of my personality, the strength of simply who I am will help us. You know these. They're natural leaders, but they have never learned to be dependent upon the Lord and lead in His strength. This is all the time this happens. Paul had to learn not to be like that. Is there anybody in the room that might could identify with that? How about this one? Go to Romans 2. In Romans 2, let's pick up in 17. Now, if you call yourselves a Jew, isn't that interesting? Either they are or are not a Jew. Either a person was born in Judaism, genetically, religiously a Jew, or they're not. But that's not what he says. He says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say to the people you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is like saying, 
really, really, you are so proud of your family heritage. You're sure that you're better than us because you have descended from governors and kings. Your family came from the right side of the tracks. Is there nothing ugly in your family history? Paul is giving them a smackdown because their pride is coming from their heritage. You might say he's laying them naked before all of this church in his writings. Because guess what? The people who were doing these things were guilty of all of the same things. Paul the Apostle is using the Word of God as a sword in this case to sever them from the things that they've covered themselves in to look better than everyone else. Can you see that? It's not that he's against Judaism. Paul is a proud Jew. It's not that he's against the ancestry. He's very proud of that. He even <coughs> quotes that he was circumcised on the eighth day and a descendant of Benjamin. But Paul is very upset that this has become something that is relied upon. What are we to be judged by? Are you relying, trusting in the Lord or in some other thing? So, so far you've seen that there can be a self-righteousness. You've seen that there can be clothing of personal strength. Here there can be a clothing of personal heritage. Look at Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Woe to anybody who is trusting in chariots, horsemen, strength, and is not relying upon the Lord. Well, probably you don't have chariots, horsemen, and uh great strength that you're relying on but let me ask you when you get to that place where everything is tense where you're frustrated is the first thing you think about whether you have money in the bank is the first thing that you think about how many people like you and what reputation you have in the community is the first thing that you think about is what a good person you are and why everything should be okay because after all you do all of the right things our God will work to strip you in every area of all of those things so that you have nothing left but to say, Lord, I'm relying on you. And that is not a bad thing at all. Because when a man is naked, what do you want to do? If somebody walked into this room naked, what would the men in the church want to do? Covering immediately. God put this instinct in us. When he sees you naked, he wants to cover you with something. The only problem is if I want to cover this brother right now, if I, if I just think, man, if I could do something for him and I want to put something on him now. You ever tried to put blue jeans over blue jeans? You ever do those little experiments in youth group where people keep putting on sets of clothes and see how many you can put on? It's pretty hard to do. It is hard to be clothed with Christ when you're clothing yourself with every other thing to make yourself happy. Guys, are you sure if you just had the right job, everything would be good? I mean, come on. How many of us have fallen into that trap? We've defined our worth by what we do. Well, God will surely put you in a situation where you're embarrassed of what you do. Yeah, amen. All the salesmen in the room said yes. <laughs> I sold ice machines at one point in my life and then used cars. That was a step up. Used cars from ice machines talking about Jesus all of the time. And what did they say you could never trust? A car salesman, right? 
God will do whatever it takes to make sure your reliance is upon him because he loves you. I don't want to read it, but in Isaiah 59, 4, he said, why do you guys rely on empty words and arguments? He said, you don't look to me, but you rely on those things. How many people in this world fall back to the same paradigm of bad thinking? They get into trouble and then they spit out their dogma, whatever it is. And it's not based on a relationship with Jesus. It's not based on utter dependence in Him. In fact, sometimes it's like a mathematical formula. Lord, I've done this, this, and this, so I know you must do this. The Lord doesn't have to do anything. If you've heard otherwise, somebody lied to you. They lied to you. When people are utterly dependent upon Him and they love Him and He motivates certain actions, He'll always bless it. But intellect can be one of those things people hide behind. I want you to turn to Isaiah 50. We're going to look at a contrast then move on from this topic. Isaiah 50, look at verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of His servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord God and rely on His God. If you are in the dark and you have no light, does God say, oh, you terrible people, you're in the dark, I'm throwing you away? Is that what this says? No. No, you simply acknowledge your situation and what does He do? Let's you trust in Him. Look at the next verse. But now, all you who light fires... And provide yourselves with flaming torches. Go and walk in the light of your fires. And of your torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. We have a choice before us right away every day. Are we going to trust in our own strength? Are we going to trust in what we can provide for ourselves? Or are we going to be holy? H-O-L-L-Y. H-O-L-Y. Holy, vulnerable before the Lord. I want to tell you it's not an easy thing to do. And most of the time in my life, unless he strips me of all resources prior to putting me in the situation, he can't hardly get me in the situation. He will do whatever it takes, including knocking you down on the road to Damascus. He will do whatever it takes because he loves you. But in the end, if you have a naked person before the Lord, you have somebody who is ready to receive something from the Lord. As long as we clothe ourselves in things that are unfitting for the body of Christ and call ourselves Christ, we are preventing blessings in our lives. If you wouldn't show your Facebook page to Jesus, you might shouldn't have your Facebook page. Look at these holy men in the Word. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles. I'll give you two examples, then we're going to go to our text and close. It's going to be in 2 Chronicles 20. <laughs> Starting in verse 12. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. This is Jehoshaphat. He's standing before Moab and Ammon, who's coming to annihilate them. Can you imagine that our president, or any president that comes to mind, not necessarily our current one, surveying the room, let's imagine that Ronald Reagan is on TV. 
And he says, the Russians are coming. And we have no defenses. If God doesn't save us, we're all going to die. How would America, who is 80% Christian, supposedly handle that statement? How do you think they would do? Okay, let's suppose that it was just a secret message only to those in church somewhere. All right, so picture everybody you've ever known in every church you've ever been in, and they get the secret message from Ronald Reagan, the Russians are coming, and we are going to certainly die if the Lord doesn't save us because we have no defenses. How comfortable are you in that moment? How comfortable do you think everyone else is? What do you think people would do? Do you think that there would be a big line at the borders to this country trying to get out of it? From only church people who heard it. Right? The day before, they were sure that God blessed them with this house. They were sure God called them to this church. They were sure God wanted their children in this school. But what do you think they are on that day when they hear that word? Well, what they are is naked. When all the covering stripped away, we're going to find out, is their trust really in the Lord? Or was it in the school that their kids went to? The clothes that they wore? The house that they lived in? And all of the window dressing? How would you do in that situation? Look at what Jehoshaphat does. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood before the Lord. Nobody ran. I was at a Promise Keepers meeting with 50,000 Christian men. 50,000 Christian men. That should be the most powerful place on the planet, shouldn't it? 50,000 Christian men. If one chases 1,000 and two chase 10,000, I'm not, I'm not good with numbers like Fred is. But maybe one of you who works with the exponents can figure out how many 50,000 should chase. So a man stands up at a microphone and he says, there is a horrible storm coming this way. With severe weather alerts. We need to pray that God will turn the storm. Everybody began to pray. Maybe 45 seconds into the prayer, one of the towers blew over that had the speakers on it. The same man yelled, everybody run. <laughs> into the microphone. You know what 50,000 Christian men did because one tower fell over? They ran. There were only a few who didn't, and it's because they were so young and dumb, they didn't understand what was happening, and it seemed fun. <laughs> they played, did slip and slides and stuff out in the middle of the field. The devil knows very clearly that American Christians, if they're stripped to the place where there's nothing but God to rely on, we often don't. What better example could I have lived in my life? I'm not interested in the rest of American Christians. I'm interested in this group. So easy to say, if I had nothing but the Lord, it would be enough. But when you have to wait on a promise of God to be fulfilled, when you don't get what you want, when you want it, and you feel naked and embarrassed, when a decision you made, even though you believe that you were trusting God, now it looks wrong. How do you act? You walk around sullen and angry? You have lost friends that rat you out? So funny, some things that I hear said about others in the church from even lost people. This ought never be. When you're stripped to nothing but you and the Lord, ought to be this person trusts God. They may perish. They may not make it through this, that, or the other, but they died trusting the Lord. Not everyone runs. I want to tell you 2 Chronicles 
1411 is a prayer that Walmart will never sell. You can go find the prayer of Jabez at Walmart. You can find the prayer of Jabez for teenagers, for women, for old people, for everything at any Christian bookstore. The prayer of Jabez says that God wants to bless you and extend your territory. The prayer of Asa says, Lord God, we're helpless. There is no one like you who will help the powerless against the mighty. But we're relying upon you. Does it surprise you that both Jehoshaphat and Asa had complete and total victory in their battles? Saints, God wants to put us in a position where we have nothing to rely on but Him. So I have a prophetic word for you. It's going to come from John. Turn to John 11. Is the quietness a mixture of contemplation and conviction? You know the number one thing we do in marriage counseling? Number one thing, whether pre or post marriage, is teach people to be honest with their spouse. (laughs) Isn't it absurd that two people can be joined like Siamese twins in God's eyes? They're literally one unit but one will not share a weakness, a desire, or a hurt with the other because why? They want them to view them a certain way. One holds a very strong opinion about something going on in the other one's life but never shares it. Why? Because they want to make sure they're viewed a certain way. Or maybe the devil works with a different tactic. He says, oh, don't hurt them. They're insecure and they can't handle it. If you are one, everything you have is each other's. And you promised that on the day that you're married. Every marriage conflict comes down to those issues. Every single one. And I meet people that have been married 30 years. Say, I've never told my spouse this one thing. Well, shame on you. Shame on you. That's marriages. That's a reflection of us and God. What is it like with you and God? You know, one good thing about being naked is once there's nothing left to hide, when it's just all forgive the term natural at least all pretenses are gone nothing left but you and him and whatever you are is however he made you and now you can ask him to remake you one of the things that prompted this is a brother it's David Alvarado Pastor Alvarado was praying for a woman in another country so you'll never meet her and she was very tall and he's not a very tall person so they had her sit in a chair. And when she stood up, the chair stood up with her. A little hole in the chair had captured one of her body parts. And so she kind of shook, and the chair fell off, right? But it'd be hard not to notice that situation. <laughs> and as he looked to help her, a part of her anatomy, a cheek, had suddenly come to mid-back, and another one was down by her lower thigh. And he couldn't figure out how that was possible. And then he realized that the form and shape in those pants was not real. She had some kind of fake things there, right? The lengths to which people go injecting their faces with poison simply to look different. To put out a facade is a mirror of exactly how insecure this nation is with all of its wealth, with all of its resources, because we don't know how to trust God. Everything about us is crying out, we need an identity. 
And the identity is to be found in Jesus. It is to be found in Jesus. You in John 11? John 11, starting in 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Why would Jesus be deeply moved in spirit and troubled? Who, what's the incident here? What's John 11 about? Somebody's died. Who is it? <coughs> Lazarus has died. Jesus has already announced to his disciples that he's going there to raise him. So why is Jesus deeply moved and troubled? He knows what he's going to do. Why is he troubled? Because of their unbelief. He sees them in a broken, vulnerable situation. And he hurts right along with them. Right along with them. Listen to the extent to which this goes. When he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Anything that is difficult for you moves the heart of God. He cares. From the time that he called Israel out of Egypt, he said, I have seen the misery of my people. I have seen their suffering. Our God is watching you in your difficult circumstances, your struggle with the sin that you want to put completely behind you, but it still keeps creeping up in your life and it is humiliating to you. Your acquaintance with mercy because you're asking for mercy all of the time. He's familiar with this. I'm not excusing it. I'm saying he is watching the struggle to see if you are struggling or if there's no struggle at all, you've just given over to it. But in the heart of a believer where you are struggling against something and still failing, he is watching that struggle and he cares. He doesn't weep because you're a failure. He weeps because you are not yet free like he called you to be. You know, Cain stood before the Lord. And he said, sin is crouching at your door, Cain, and you must master it. Nowhere in that did God simply rebuke a spirit of murder or cast the devil of murder out of him. It was a struggle that Cain would have with sin. And Cain lost that. Every human being has that very same struggle with sin. The devil's goal is not to get you to sin so that you're disqualified from Jesus. His goal is to get you to sin so you won't feel like you can come into his presence and you disqualify yourself. If your sin could keep God from coming to you, none of us would have ever been saved. It doesn't keep God from visiting with you. It keeps you from visiting with God. Let's be wise to his schemes. Jesus sat there and wept. One of the ladies has already mentioned, you are, you are the resurrection. She believed that God could raise the dead. She believed Jesus could raise the dead. She had no idea he was about to do it. What do we do with death in our lives? We do the same thing she does. Watch. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Isn't that a reasonable question? If God put me in this situation, can't he deliver me? And then every day you don't see the deliverance. What are you? Angry, disappointed, frustrated? Joy leaking out of you like a bucket that's got holes in it? So that when people see you, they want to turn the other way because they know there's a certain agony in you that is almost unholy because you're just mad that God's not doing what you want to do. Hey, 
Why did Jesus wait so long to come see Lazarus? You've heard all these messages before. Why did he wait so long? He waited because he wanted to do an amazing, unique miracle in this guy's life. That's good for everybody except Lazarus and his family, right? That is good for everybody except... Hey, look, who wants to see the dead raised? Come on, who wants to see the dead raised in here? All right, Cody, would you kill Bob for me? (laughs) Bob, you're not so excited about that? Now, praise God, then that's not in here. But who would be less excited than Bob? So this is good for everybody except Lazarus, Mary, and Martha at the moment. But tell me something. Do you remember Lazarus as the guy who stinks and is in the tomb? Or do you remember him as the guy that Jesus called out of the tomb? How do you think Lazarus remembered himself when this event is over? Do you think Lazarus looked back at his life and said, Yeah, man, I'm the guy who stunk and was in a tomb. Or do you think he was the guy who was raised from the dead? Do you see how important our identities in the Lord are? Look at what Jesus does here. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, almost as if somebody wanted to cover this and say, Don't look at what's going on inside. I know we've never covered anything in our lives, right? In fact, hey, how you doing, brother? Fine, everything's good. When you know good and well, it's not good. Hey, brother, sister, something wrong? No, no, everything's fine. I can see. Guess we'll wait till a couple weeks till that thing germinates to the point where it's killing you, and then we'll talk about it. Take away the stone. I want to give you a prophetic word today. Let's take away the stone. Let's start by removing the things you put in your life to conceal what's going on. It won't work. Let's be honest. All the stone does is keep people from seeing what's happening. It doesn't do anything to change what is happening. But the Lord said, Martha, but the Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there four days. Isn't this why we put these kind of veils and facades up in our lives? You don't understand how bad this stinks. You don't understand. If you knew how ugly it was, you wouldn't want any part of it. It always strikes me that I can be sitting before a couple and one not have told the other one something because if they knew, they married you, didn't they? Must have liked you a little bit at some point. How about you and Jesus? I just can't talk to him about this. Do you think he doesn't know already? Are you really worse off than when he met you? Yes, Eric, I am. You don't understand. I was set free from these things, and I returned, so I'm like a dog returning to his vomit. And you don't think everybody else in the room fits the same description? I know. All of you were saved once. I've been saved thousands of times. As many days as there's been since he first spoke to me, I've been saved every day. And he probably is going to have to save me a few more times before this is over. It's funny. When I wear the title pastor, people treat me differently than when I say, Hi, I'm Eric. Doesn't that tell you something? Why do you think then people need to be addressed as, you know, apostolic great father better than you? You Why do you think that? They're scared you might find out they're really just a regular dude, person? But the Lord said, But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, and he has been there four days. 
Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, a.k.a. trusted, you would see the glory of God? When we begin to get real with the Lord about what is actually there, when we uncover it, when we're not worried about the odor, and the thing about an odor is you don't really have to see to know something's happened, right? <laughs> yeah. I start glancing around the room, and you have no idea where the odor came from, but everybody knows there's an odor. God will put you in a situation where everybody can feel something's wrong. They may not know it's you. They may not know what it is, but they will know something is wrong. And you have a choice to remove the stone and to begin to say, I want the glory of God more than I care about the shame of everybody realizing this spiritual funkiness is coming from me. One of my favorite proverbs is, he who conceals a matter will not prosper. He who confesses it finds mercy. This is so true, and we work so hard against it. So they took away the stone. When they're obedient to the word, good things happen. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice. God put this man in a naked, vulnerable position, just like Isaiah, to the point where he lost his life so that he could do something miraculous and amazing in his life. If we never let ourselves get stripped to this place, we never see the miracles. And the further you get beat down, the further you get pulled, everything from you except Jesus, the bigger the miracle is in the end. And we all can talk the Christianese, we can say it, but when you were in the position of looking foolish, when you were in the position of looking like you don't have it all together or you may have made a mistake, what do you do? I don't want to digress too many more times, but my least favorite thing in all of the world is when a man of God calls somebody forward for healing. And when they do not get healed visibly, he says, well, according to your faith, it'll be done unto you. That makes me want to punch somebody right in the face because all it is is he is terrified that people will think less of him because it did not happen then. So he blames that person. What do you do when you're laid bare? The right thing to do would be the man say, sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Uh, there are no great men of God. There's just a great God. And I, I might have got ahead of the Lord here. But it's certainly not this person's fault. Right. Pick on the person who's already lame. Hmm. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. All of us have heard the voice of Jesus and we have come out from the grave. <clears throat> but what we have failed to do many times in our life is get rid of these grave clothes that we are wrapped in. We are still walking around with the things that the world walks around like macho bravado, like sex appeal. Like whatever it is in your life that might make you feel confident in a group of people as a person of worth. And our king wants to strip it away so that all that is left that you're defined by is your trust in him. Otherwise, you're clinging to something that he calls filthy rags. You're clinging to something as outdated as these bell bottoms. The king of the universe will not share his glory with something else. And we know that no flesh glories in his presence. And yet, 
How often are we walking around years after salvation still with the same problem-solving methods we had before we were saved? Still with the same attitudes and the same practices we had before we were saved? There is no lost man in the world that will stand his ground in front of the temple of God. No lost man would do this knowing that an army is coming to annihilate him because it goes against everything in him for self-preservation, for self-sufficiency. It feels wrong to the flesh to do. And yet every man of God is required to stand with nothing to lean on except the Lord in the face of sure annihilation because it's how you know he is your Savior. He never starts there with you, though. None of you are standing in front of your house facing a shotgun right now for your trust in the Lord. Instead, it starts with little things. It starts with pulling away things that maybe make you feel secure. Do you feel better the month you got a bonus than the month you didn't? Of course you do. You're a human being, just like me. But you can't love the Lord any less or trust Him any less because you didn't get a bonus this month. In fact, it might be a biggest blessing in your life that you didn't. One of the things that I love about this church, you can watch me on the few days prior to the first, few days after the first. You can tell Eric is praying a lot. Mm-hmm. And we are still here. We're still here. I met with the landlord this week uh, on the 12th and paid him the rent for the other suite, which was not due to the 15th. That's early. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. Told him, Scott, there will never be a problem between us if money is the only issue. Said, we want more than a tenant relationship. We want to be your friends. And if we have anything, we will give it to you, period. He didn't know what to do. He's just looking at him and awkward as all get out. Does not know what to do. He said, I know most churches don't do this, but we care about how you do as a person, not just as a landlord. He didn't know what to do. We'll win him over. Friends, God puts you in situation after situation that's difficult so that you can see the miraculous, and we can be convinced that he's trying to punish us. Every month it feels like we're about to fail. I can't tell you the number of times I've dug up in faith the seed sown or dug up in doubt the seed sown in faith and said, Jen, it's not that big a deal. If we have to move the church back to the house, we'll do it. Right? That's horrible. I can't believe it comes out of my mouth. But it has. And I'm trying to speak it in faith, by the way. Like, oh, it'll be okay. God has provided every time. And yet, every time I face the problem, I'm sure this is the time, and usually because I did something wrong. Right? How do you do? How do you do when trials come your way? I think Jesus is trying to strip us of grave clothes. He said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. The things that make us feel secure are actually holding us back. They're actually holding us back. Fighting to protect your reputation actually defames you in God's eyes. Fighting to get your way actually ensures, in God's eyes, you won't get your way. He wants you in a situation where you can't do anything but trust Him. And then it's not enough just to be in the situation. Do you think Isaiah walked around naked those three years with a great big frown the entire time? I mean, at some point, he had to get over it and just say, 
but I'm still God's man. I still love him. He still loves me. At some point, he had to learn to win in that trial. I promise he did. No, no man of God can walk around for three years depressed. Our last scripture is 2 Corinthians 5. I, I want to talk to you about it. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's 16 and 17. But did you hear how the chapter starts? Nobody longs to be unclothed, but clothed. We groan, we're inwardly burdened because we long to be clothed. Clothed with Christ. Every situation you're in that makes you feel robbed of security. Every situation you're in where it looks like you cannot make it. Every situation you're in that is humiliating to you is a chance for you to put on another garment that makes you look a little bit more like Jesus. And all that's required for that is that you take off a garment that made you look less like Jesus. Isn't that worth it in the long run? Mm -hmm. Of course it is. Saints, I want you to begin to look at your life and see what is it that you're wearing around that you've got no business wearing around. You know, it was happening back in the day when you were lost, it was excusable. But now, it just really shouldn't be there. What defense mechanisms do you have that you're still carrying with you to avoid looking like you don't have it all together? The Word absolutely assures us that nobody who puts their trust in the Lord will be put to shame. Nobody. But if you trust in the arm of your flesh, in any of the ways we've been talking about, it is an absolute guarantee that you will lie down in torment. And Isaiah 50 said that. I want to invite you to take an inventory of your life. Look at those things. I've been doing it all week. I haven't been all that happy with what all's in my closet. Really haven't. And maybe you're one of those people that when you get before the Lord, all He does is pat you on the back and say you're a wonderful human being. But that's not me. He's interested in refining me. It lets me know that I'm His child. That process never stops. It never coasts. It never lets up. Because we've got a long ways to go. And yet, if you trust Him, He declares you victorious right now. You prove you trust Him by doing whatever it is He tells you to do. Every week I've been giving you action items. Every week I say, hey, before you leave here today, think of this thing that you can do this week. After a while it gets cliche. I don't believe God gave me this message because nobody needed it. I'm just going to ask you to do what the Lord tells you to do. Amen. Y'all stand to your feet. close with this. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, this is our prayer, saints. Close your eyes, raise your hands. Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against these vast problems. O Lord, you are our God. 
Do not let man, even this man, prevail against you. Lord, we put our lives in your hands. We promise this moment to redirect our attitudes, to change our direction, to praise you in the midst of the storms you have sent, to leave us barren of anything except you. Lord, if we have you, that is enough. We choose to seek your kingdom and let the other things be added in their time. We love you, Lord. We're asking that you would not only deliver us from the grave, but also the grave clothes. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, y'all go to Lindsay's party today. And uh, by the way, you want to see some funny clothes? You should see what the academic world wears at graduations. <laughs> it looked like a Harry Potter reunion. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Lindsay's party, celebrate and have a good time. Give Gabe and Debbie a hug. Debbie's got a baby on the way. They, they get to have a little girl. They got a boy and they're now going to have a little girl. Hug them and uh, tell them that you appreciate it. Amen.